You're listening to the Outdoor Photography Podcast, episode 83. Today, we're sitting down with award-winning fine art photographer Charles Needle to chat about all things macro, abstract, and impressionistic photography. So stay tuned. Hi, I'm Brenda Petrella, the creator of Outdoor Photography School. Join me as I sit down with top landscape and nature photographers and outdoor industry experts to chat about creativity, composition, photography tips and techniques, essential gear, safety in the outdoors, respect for nature, and so much more. Tune in every week to learn how to create compelling and impactful images while exploring and enjoying the natural world. Welcome to the Outdoor Photography Podcast. Hello, my friends, Brenda Petrella here, here to help you create better images and reconnect with nature. Thanks so much for tuning in today and sharing a part of your day with me. As some of you may recall, I injured my foot earlier this summer and have been unable to hike. And so I turned my attention towards learning macro photography over the last few months, and I have found it to be both rewarding and extremely challenging. On Instagram, I asked you what your macro photography questions were. And while I don't yet feel qualified to answer some of those questions thoroughly, our guest today can. So it is with immense pleasure to introduce you to Charles Needle, who specializes in macro photography as well as abstract and impressionistic photography. And at the end of our conversation today, he answers your questions. So let me give you a brief background on Charles, and then we'll roll the interview. Charles Needle is an award-winning Colorado-based fine art photographer, author, speaker, and workshop leader with a unique eye for design and artistic interpretation. His popular Art of Nature creative macro workshops have attracted students nationwide. A popular conference and camera club speaker, photography juror, and international teacher, Charles has authored three cutting-edge instructional books, including Tiny Worlds, Creative Macro Photography Skills, Impressionistic Photography, A Field Guide to Using Your Camera as a Paintbrush, and Creative Macro Photography, Professional Tips and Techniques. Charles is also a Fujifilm USA talent team member and has been a North American Nature Photography Association, or NAPA, Showcase Award winner for the last 14 years. Charles' photographs have been selected for publication in Nature's Best, Outdoor Photographer Magazine, Nature Photographer Magazine, Inner Reflections Engagement Calendar, the Chicago Tribune, Self Magazine, and are in private and public collections nationwide and abroad. And so without further ado, please enjoy my wide-ranging conversation with Charles Needle. Charles, welcome to the Outdoor Photography Podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show today. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. So I've already given the listeners a brief bio on you in the introduction, but I always love to hear from our guests more about their origin story. And I understand you've been doing photography for a while now, like 20 or 30 years even. And so I'm curious, you know, way back when, what inspired you to pick up a camera in the first place? Well, I can always remember as a kid uh, taking family photos and things like that. And then um, I never dreamed this would become a full-time career. And gradually, kind of in a roundabout way, 
I ended up uh, discovering beauty through the lens of a, a macro um, and macro subjects. And it was through actually an illness. I had uh, the chronic fatigue syndrome, for lack of a better term. Yeah. Uh, that's what it was later diagnosed as and searched for almost a decade, you know, for answers, what's going on with me. And it was kind of that dark night of the soul and a real pivotal point in my life and changed my life uh, forever. Um, and totally fine now, you know, traveling nationally and internationally teaching workshops. But because of that, I couldn't travel, you know, to the Grand Canyon and far and wide places and just literally on my hands and knees without a whole lot of energy, really found photography to be therapeutic. And so it was very much a personal journey to begin with in that way. So that's, yeah. but I'd always been, you know, attracted to nature and, and beauty and especially smaller scenes and close-ups. So before the illness had hit you, were you doing nature photography and are you largely self-taught, would you say, or were you taking classes? I was doing nature photography quite a bit and did self-teach a lot. Um, and I decided to get a degree in photography also from oh, nice. a school in Atlanta. I'm from Atlanta originally, trying to lose the accent, <laughs> uh, not doing a very good job. But um, I uh, just ended up, you know, gradually becoming more and more uh, attracted to nature and just loved putting together slideshows and things like that for family and friends and was always the vacation photographer, you know, whenever we'd go somewhere and was yeah. much more interested in the scenic beauty than, you know, people pictures. Right. <laughs> that wasn't <laughs> yeah. my thing. Um, but yeah. I do enjoy people pictures, but it's just a whole nother set of challenges, of course. Uh, yeah. So that's kind of how it just gradually evolved. And I, I just followed my heart. That was a big part of it. Yeah, it sounds like it. So what aspects of the practice of photography do you think contributed to your healing journey? I guess just the fact that you could stay grounded and, you know, slow down and it almost became a form of meditation working with the macro lens in particular and doing close ups right in my own backyard. Um, and, you know, I talk about the metaphors really, uh, without getting too <laughs> crazy about it, but there, you know, the tripod is grounding literally, uh, forcing us to slow down and really pay attention to edges in our composition. And, you know, it's a very slow process. It's not like sports photography or, or, you know, that kind of thing. And, yeah. uh, you know, just the edge of a petal could get me so excited or the way the light was falling on something, you know, just little things. Uh, and I just began to feel so much restorative energy from that. And that's kind of how it just happened. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. I feel like it found me, you know, yeah. than the other way around. that's so wonderful. And so, how long after, you know, you started working with macro, did you decide to make it more of your full-time pursuit? There were several mentors along the way. I took a lot of photography workshops once I was trained more, you know, in commercial photography, but realized all along that fine art and nature was going to be my passion. So I decided to really kind of focus in that area and took workshops, uh, two people in particular, I was going to mention who were very instrumental in my growth, uh, were Nancy Rotenberg, who mm -hmm. some of the listeners may remember her, rest her soul. 
Um, And she just was very nurturing and encouraging to me and said, you know, you should teach this. You've got the right personality and the patience and all of that. And so um, I started just doing private lessons at first, and then it grew into uh, workshops in my backyard. When I lived in Atlanta, I had a waterfall and flower garden and all that in my backyard, and people would come and we'd photograph there. Um, and the other person who was very instrumental and still is, uh, is Freeman Patterson, mm-hmm. who is a Canadian photographer. And, uh, for listeners who aren't familiar with him, it's freemanpatterson.com. And he's in his mid eighties and a dear friend of mine, we've taught together, uh, numerous workshops in Monet's garden and places like that. But he, um, was very instrumental as well in helping me to just, kind of let go. Uh, and he, one of my favorite quotes from him is think of your camera as your dance partner, then do si do. So he <laughs> nice. helped me in, in through my, you know, struggles with my physical illness and all of that um, to let go and just, you know, be more joyous and in living and in photographing and not worry about so many rules and all of that and, and constraints. So I think that, was huge for me as well. And Freeman and I also connected because he survived not two, but I believe three uh, liver transplants. And so photography was very therapeutic for him as well um, in the whole process of, you know, so those two people in particular were and still are with me every day, I feel like. Yeah, that's that's beautiful. It reminds me a bit of the conversation I had with John Barclay and, you know, Nancy and Freeman were also big influences in his work as well. And he, and he talks about gap, uh, grounded, aware, present. Mm. And so there seems like there's some overlap there with this groundedness that you were describing as well as being part of not just your healing process, the way of healing your body and your mind, but also as a way of uh, connecting with your subject or expressing what it is that you're trying to express through your photograph. Exactly. And one of the things, too, uh, that I say and, and teach in my workshops is that photography really is more of a subtractive art. Mm. And, you know, if you think about painting and dance and music and all the other art forms out there, they're more additive, like you're adding kind of to a blank canvas, if you will. Whereas with photography, we're trying to eliminate all the distracting elements through the viewfinder, which really, to me, is such a powerful metaphor for, you know, what we do when we meditate. Um, It's all about kind of distilling the essence of a subject and really going deeper and and beyond just the literal sort of, ah, here is a flower, you know, photo. Yeah. Yeah. I, I noticed that on your website, you use the word essence a lot. And, and I like to say that with my own photography that I value essence over epic. You know, I would, mm. I don't like to go to icons and do the typical composition. I'd much, I get much more satisfaction out of distilling things down to, to their essence. And so what, what do you mean by that when you're describing essence of a subject? What does that mean to you? It's it's really about just quieting yourself without a camera at first and just noticing, you know, letting the subject speak to you almost. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times if you do that and you have that open mindedness and instead of going in with pre- preconceived 
ideas of, you know, I'm, I'm going to do this, that, or the other. Um, it, it really can be a powerful way of approaching all subjects in photography, whether you're doing close up or landscapes or anything. And it's really just making the image kind of your own, uh, putting your own unique sort of vision in place. So that's kind of the best way to <laughs> describe that. Yeah. Yeah. So they say that the best camera is the one with you. And <laughs> I understand that you use your iPhone as well as your big DSLR and lenses and all of that. And so aside from accessibility, what are some advantages of using a smartphone when it comes to creative photography? That's a very good question. Things are really changing uh, rapidly. I just bought my new iPhone 14 Pro Max. And, oh, uh, nice. It, it is the camera that's always with you. And I think of my smartphone as a visual sketch pad. It's oh, helping nice. me to see and experience the world more deeply, you know, on a daily basis. I may never share or use, you know, more than half the images I make every day, but it's giving me that personal joy and satisfaction and thrill, you know, and we, we oftentimes are so focused on trying to photograph for a photo contest or a judge or, you know, the camera club. And that's all great. I'm not saying that's wrong at all, but it's so important to feed and nurture your own artistic voice and your inner self really. Um, so the phone is a tool that really I've found helps me to do that. And the other advantage I think of using a smartphone is that you don't have to worry about f-stops and shutter speeds and all of that. You know, it's helping you to compose and mm -hmm. focus more on composition with your photography. Um, whereas, you know, if you have a camera in your hand, sometimes you get focused too much on the other buttons and menus and what, you know, all of that, which is great, but it, sometimes can hinder your creativity. Right. Yeah. That's really interesting that the, it sort of takes out that technical aspect exactly. so that you can really just focus on the composition part and the creative part. Yeah. Yeah. That right. makes sense. So for listeners who want to start using their smartphones more than, you know, taking the random snapshot, do you have any initial guidelines that you could offer in terms of whether or not to get lenses for the phone, um, any apps that you recommend for editing, and and then any information that you have about maybe preparing the images for printing, if that's even a possibility. I've not attempted that myself, so <laughs> sure, sure, yeah. I mean, it's amazing now. With uh, I'll mention, uh, Topaz has the AI Gigapixel software now, and that is a game changer. I think because you can up-res an image from a phone and easily make a beautiful 20 by 30 print or larger. Uh -huh. um, it's astounding. Yeah. And I mean, of course, you need to maybe have one of the later generation phones. Like I'd say, oh, I don't know, maybe a 11 or higher, you know, in terms of iPhone. Not as familiar with Android, uh, but I wish they'd make more apps for Android. And Android phones are awesome. The sensors are great, you know, but it's just app developers are gearing more of their work toward iPhones these days. But I do talk about the equivalent apps when I teach iPhone segments. But um, how about lenses? Yes. Yeah, so I, with the 13 and the 14, don't feel as much of a need for at least macro lenses. The, thir the iPhone 13 and 14, um, of course, I had the Pro Max version of both of those, can focus close and mm. do... Uh, macro, unlike any of the previous versions of the iPhone. So those 
two phones are game changers in my mind as well in terms of macro photography. Uh, it's astounding. You know, you can get within an inch and a half, two inches of a subject and wow. get incredible sharpness without a tripod. Um, so it, <laughs> yeah, it's That's just mind blowing. Yeah. Uh, it is. Uh, but so I haven't felt a need for those external lenses, but I do have the moment lenses. That's one system of lenses. You do have to get a case from the company called moment. Uh, if you do get those lenses and on in the gear section of my website, there's a link to moment and people can go there and, you know, if they're interested in buying. But uh, I, I think that's a great system of lenses for the phone. And you don't have to switch lenses when you switch your phone. You're only just going to have to get a new case I for see. the lenses. And I do I also um, sell a little kit of lenses. It's uh, got like a telephoto, macro, kaleidoscope, all kinds of fun lenses, polarizer even, circular polarizer for your phone um, that is kind of a clip-on system for the phone. It clips on the top of the phone. It'll work on an Android or an iPhone. And that is really fun to just walk around with some of those lenses and use them in addition to the native camera. But the native camera built into the phone these days is pretty astounding, even when it comes to low light situations. Wow. So what would you say would be an advantage of using a DSLR mirrorless camera, you know, like looking forward in the future as phones continue to get better and these apps and being able to take smaller files and increase their resolution and all of that? Do you think there we'll see DSLRs and mirrorless kind of go by the wayside? I don't think so. I really think those systems are here to stay. Although SLRs, I believe Nikon and Canon have already announced they're going to stop production on SLRs, but mirrorless cameras, I think for sure are here to stay. Yeah. Um, you know, there's the weight issue, much lighter weight and, you know, yes, the quality is going to be a little better than you can get today out of a phone. Um, and you can't do, you know, shallow depth of field, for instance, with the phone, if, if, with macro subjects quite yet. Um, although I figured out a way with one of the lenses on the current iPhone to do that. But it's it's there's still a ways to go. And, you know, if you look at an image at 100 percent in Photoshop, the pixels are a little less clean, I guess you could say, coming out of a phone uh, still. Yeah. And that's, you know, super picky. Most people are probably not going to make a giant print of an image. But even if you did, using that AI gigapixel would probably clean up that pixelization for sure. Yeah. Um, so, but there, I think for sure mirrorless cameras are here to stay. Yeah. I recently updated from the D810 to the Z7 and Z6 and uh, I was so happy I did that. <laughs> yes. I still yeah. haven't made the leap yet, but I know I will eventually. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it just, the weight wise, it makes a huge difference. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So your work integrates macro photography, abstract photography, impressionistic photography. And so before we dive into these more deeply, I was wondering if you could first describe for us how you would define these different types of photography and how they may differ or overlap. Mm, yes, there is some overlapping, especially when we talk about impressionistic and abstract photography, uh, because in a sense, by definition, an impressionistic image is kind of more abstract. It's not a literal representation 
of the subject. And when I uh, think of Impressionism, of course, I'd go back to Monet and the Impressionist painters, and it was all about kind of using loose brushstrokes and um, very small points of color and, you know, looking at tonal contrast, color contrast, things like that. So a lot of times I'll squint at a scene if I want to render it in an impressionistic way and see if there is, you know, tonal contrast, color contrast going on. And if so, usually uh, I can spot it, you know, after a lot of trial and error with this, you get where right. you can see what's going to work and what may not work. But um, you basically, when I do impressionistic photography, I usually employ either intentional camera movement or uh, multiple exposures. And my camera, it's the Nikon D850, allows me to shoot up to 10 frames um, if I wanted to. And the camera will combine all 10 of those frames into one single file. Um, and they can be raw. Um, and it's just, I think, one of the most underutilized creative tools uh, in a in a camera today, whether it's mirrorless or SLR camera. Um, and so I've had a lot of fun doing that. And then just from doing that, of course, it makes the image look more impressionistic, like it's more painterly, uh, if you will. And so that's how I would sort of define those. And abstract would really just mean something. I mean, sometimes abstract gets into the realm of something you really can't recognize at all. Mm -hmm. Um, and you just like, as Monet said, forget the name of the thing you're looking at <laughs> right. or what you're seeing. He used to say, you know, to really see, we must forget the name of the thing we're seeing oh, or looking yeah. at, um, yeah. which is kind of a profound quote from him. But, yeah. um, it's th so that's fun to just, again, distilling the essence or if, if there's a particular, aspect of a subject that's calling to me, I'll try to just only show that without necessarily needing to reveal the whole thing, just a, a piece of something. And so that can become abstract. It evokes mystery in the viewer and that sort of thing. So the third type of imagery, macro imagery, uh, is really good uh, because it's, and I think that term is used loosely these days, macro. I think of macro as either a close-up or a true macro image is kind of one-to-one -one magnification of your subject. And that's not easy to explain in a podcast, yeah. but uh, I think most of the listeners maybe know what, what I mean by that. Um, so, But I love just doing close-ups as well as um, macro photography. Mm -hmm. But I do like to make that distinction a lot of times. Yeah, I, I have struggled to make a distinction between close up and macro as well. And and I guess you're, what you're saying, that makes sense to me that the magnification ratio with close up, there may not be one to consider. It's just close up as close as you can focus. Uh, whereas with macro, it could, could be um, upsized. You know, your subject could be life size or bigger in a macro shot, I suppose. But how you're right, framing exactly. that and what you're including in the frame could be very similar. Sure, exactly. Yeah. So let's tease apart these different techniques a little bit. So we've talked about intentional camera movement or ICM a little bit on the podcast here and there. So for listeners who are brand new to that, could you describe just a little bit about what that means? And, and I'm curious if you have like a shutter speed that you prefer or as a starting place that you that you go to. Sure. Yes. Yeah. So Intentional camera movement essentially involves you either you moving. Well, it really does involve you as the photographer moving the camera. I mean, you can 
pick up movement from things like waterfalls or cars, you know, and things like that that are already moving. But when it's intentional camera movement, it's actually you, the artist, intentionally moving your camera. Usually it's a shutter speed of around, you know, half second, quarter second um, or slower. Uh, and it all depends on how fast you move the camera and also, you know, um, what f-stop you might be using uh, without getting too technical. Essentially, you just want to um, make sure you use a small f-stop so that you can get that longer shutter speed. And if you're in a really bright light situation, you may have to use a, a what's called a variable neutral density filter or just even a regular neutral density filter. Or if you don't have that filter, you could use a polarizer, a circular polarizer. And that will, what you're essentially trying to do is reduce the amount of light uh, that's coming in through the lens to, you know, hit your sensor um, or film. I don't want to discount some listeners maybe (laughs) using film still. Um, And and by doing that and moving the camera, uh, you get all kinds of different effects depending on how fast or how slow you move. And the general rule with all movement and even with multiple exposures is a little bit of movement goes a long way. It's a lot less movement than you would think. And if you could visualize me doing this, you know, if I'm panning, let's say, um, a seascape, I may only move the camera an inch and a half. Mm. You know, if there's movement in the waves, especially, and you're moving in the opposite direction of the way those waves are going, that, you know, is one um, tip for people is that you don't necessarily have to move a long distance to get the effect. And are you are you moving the camera while sort of pivoting your body or are you moving the whole thing and you're not you're not like looking through the viewfinder and that's your pivot point or sometimes I'll be moving my body. Uh, I like looking through the viewfinder when I'm doing it. To me, it's just a more intimate experience than Mm -hmm. using, you know, the back of the camera, the LCD. So I like looking through and it's almost like a golf swing. Uh, I'm not a golfer, but I've played putt-putt plenty of times. Uh, And (laughs) you basically just want to start the movement before you click the shutter button and continue moving even after the button has been clicked. So the key though is starting the movement before you press the shutter button. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I've played around with ICM and for me, it's still quite a haphazard (laughs) experience. (laughs) Um, And so sometimes it'll, you know, the bottom of the frame will be kind of squiggly and then the rest is a nice smooth movement, you know, and that's not usually what I'm going for, but yeah. So I, yeah, there, starting there's before something very freeing about sense. it. And, and there's this element of unpredictability too about it. That's just joyous to me. It is. You know? yeah. And it's also about not being afraid to fail. Yeah. You know, it's digital. So who cares? We can, you know, delete, but don't be too quick to delete. I always tell people. Yeah. You never know. You know, it's something you don't like when you get it at home and look on the computer. It might look so much better. Uh, Or you could use that image and combine it with another completely unrelated image and do kind of a composite that way and get something interesting. So. Yeah, it's so true. Like there are times when I'm playing around with ICM and I look on the back of the LCD and I'm thinking, no, this is nothing. And it's usually because what I was trying to get with the ICM, like say I'm doing trees and I'm trying to get nice, clean vertical lines that is just about color and contrast. And I'm not, I didn't get that for some reason. 
I'm disappointed and I and I've learned over time not to delete those because often later, like you're saying, like just playing around with how you're editing it, you know, can ch- totally change. Like maybe throw out the idea completely that you are trying to do trees and straight lines. It could be something totally different. And uh, exactly, yeah, it yeah. takes you in different directions. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So one thing I haven't played around with yet is multiple exposures, and I'm, so I'm curious a little bit more about that. I, I have the ability on my camera. I've literally never used it. So when you're going to create a photograph like that, what are are you changing? exposure settings for each frame and how do you how do you keep things consistent in terms of lighting I guess is one of my questions yeah I guess I'll address the lighting question first um, so when you're using multiple exposures or even really with intentional camera movement the beauty is you can use this in soft overcast light bright sunlight e- even at high noon you know, most nature photographers pack their gear up uh, in the middle of the day and go take a, a nap. Uh, right. But and when that's fine, but you can still keep shooting even in really high contrast lighting situations uh, with movement or multiple exposures. So it's really just any time. Uh, and yes, I love straight, literal, sharp images. You know, big fan of all of that. But once I've done all of that and kind of gotten it out of my system, then I sort of say to myself, okay, how can I throw another log on the fire here and take yeah. this a, a bit further, you know, uh, and just uh, really keep dosy doing <laughs> with my <laughs> camera. Uh, so that's the, the whole lighting thing uh, with that. And then... As far as settings, I've, I've got a book called Impressionistic Photography. Um, it's now an ebook. I've sold out of 1,500 printed copies. Wow, so that's great. As an interim solution, I now have posted on my website an ebook version of that book. And um, anyway, Freeman Patterson wrote the forward, and it's nice. just a great sort of how to book with mm-hmm. all kinds of tips and techniques. It covers seven or eight different techniques using multiple exposures. So it all depends, just like the answer is for a lot of things in photography, it depends. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I guess, you know, let's just take uh, like the soft glow montage, which a lot of people may know that as the Orton effect. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you've heard of that before. I have, but for people who haven't, why don't you describe it a little bit? Sure. So there's a gentleman named Michael Orton, and I believe he comes from the Pacific Northwest. Um, I used to live in Seattle for about 10 years. Uh, Now I'm in Colorado. But anyway, uh, the Orton effect involves taking two or more, really starting, though, with two when you're first learning. So two shots. So you would set your camera to do two multiple exposures. And this is different from HDR. You know, with HDR, it's really more about uh, trying to extend tonal range, whereas with the multiple exposure feature, it's essentially just sandwiching the images together. Um, And, you know, back in the days of slide film, (laughs) I'm dating myself, but, you know, you would actually shoot two different slides uh, with different exposures or different subjects and then take one of them out of the slide mount and drop it into the other uh, slide mount and make like an image sandwich, if you will. And it's just essentially combining two images. If you think about it that way, it's kind of like two layers almost. And so for the soft glow, you're doing two images. One is at a small aperture with sharp focus. You do have to use manual focus and you do have to be on a tripod with this. 
So one is that sharp focus, um, small aperture, like F16, whatever. Uh, and then the other one is intentionally thrown out of focus and you change your aperture to the widest aperture. So my lens is 2.8. Um, and I'm assuming that you would be shooting in aperture priority when I say you change your aperture because the camera is going to automatically change the shutter speed for you. Gotcha. So by shooting those two images and then having the camera combine them, it looks like the subject has kind of a, a glow to it. Uh, it's great for romanticizing, you know, a garden scene, let's say, or it works really well with rust and old cars or weathered wood or, you know, other things like that. Um, so you can probably Google, you know, Orton effect, O-R-T-O-N, uh, those listeners that want to dive deeper, but I do cover it in my book as well. And yeah. you can break the rules. You can do both at a wide aperture. I've done this, especially with macro subjects and one's uh, sh sharp focus, one's out of focus, but they're both at, you know, four or 2.8. And then that too will give you a different effect with shallow depth of field on a close up subject, especially that's effective. So, Interesting. It, 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 so the settings are really different for each particular technique that I describe in my book. Yeah, well, we'll definitely link to the book in the show notes so people can check that out. Um, what you were describing just now in the, the second example reminded me a little bit of the um, effect that you can get with lens baby lenses where it's so soft, you know, and it's so is it different than that, would you say, or? Are they similar. similar. It is similar. There's an overall softness to the image when you're using a lens baby, um, just because of the way the optics are, um, especially their new soft focus optic. Um, definitely get that sort of soft look and the velvet lenses as well. Uh, and they're great lenses. But yeah, I found it's a little different look. It's hard to really articulate or describe how it is different. But that soft glow really does look different. Yeah. Interesting. So the, the late Jerry Olsman used to say that he would go collect assets, which were various photographs that he would later use in, in these photo montages and different ways of creatively expressing whatever was on his mind. And so would you say that you also like to look for assets when you're out in the field, maybe to be used later in a, in a composite or a multiple exposure type of thing? And, and if so, what is it that you're looking for? Like what would make you think like, ooh, this would be a good asset? <laughs> Sure. I definitely collect folders of textures. Um, I'm a big fan of, you know, textures and patterns. And I mean, the other day I saw a really cool uh, texture from like, I think it was wallpaper in a restroom, you know, <laughs> wait until everybody else had left the restroom and, you know, grabbed the shot. Of course, I was with my phone. I didn't have my yeah. other camera with me. Yeah. But um, yeah, so, you know, they're everywhere. There, There's art in your life. That's another huge message I want to uh, convey to people. And again, the phone, it goes back to using the phone because it's always with you and you may not have your other camera with you. But so, um, yeah, I'm looking for textures and, you know, objects that maybe have a clean background uh, where you could overlay texture later, yeah. uh, that sort of thing. Those who can't do multiple exposures in camera are not left in the dark. Um, there is a free script or action that you can run in Photoshop. And it's available also on my website. You would oh, nice. need to go to the resources 
tab on the website and it's a free script you there's a pdf file that tells you how to install the script into photoshop and you basically can combine the images manually later in photoshop and if you're savvy enough and know how to unravel the history once you've run the script then you can mess with blending modes and opacity and sort of things like that um, but I just get such a thrill from trying it in camera and want that immediate satisfaction that my camera can give me that because I can do up to 10 if I wanted. Yeah. Uh, rarely am I combining 10 frames, um, but sometimes I do for certain things. And so, yeah, th there's everybody can have fun with this. And with intentional camera movement, you don't need to have the multiple exposure capability. I want to make sure people realize that. So everybody can do that as long as you can just get a shutter speed that's you know slow enough to show right movement yeah and so um with smartphone users if you wanted to do that are there apps that you can use that would slow the shutter speed down so that you could do icm on a phone there are um, one of the most popular ones for the iphone is called slow shutter cam mm. and you may have to type in slow shutter camera uh in the app store Mm -hmm. um, to get it to come up. It's kind of a blue icon with white shutter blades, a uh, circular okay. sort of, um, aperture. Yeah. yeah. Aperture. And, but there are lots of other sort of knockoffs. So make sure you get the right one, uh, slow shutter cam. Anyway, uh, that will allow you to do, you can even do bulb with that app, which is oh, really wow. fun. That yeah. is cool. Lots of fun. And then while we're talking about the iPhone and apps for the stuff, there's one that will allow you to do multiple exposures as well. Oh, nice. Wow. And I'm a huge fan of that app. Uh, it's called Average Camera Pro. And you definitely need to type out all three of those words in the app store, Average Camera Pro. Okay. And that one is super fun. I mean, it's highly addictive. <laughs> Anything, <laughs> you know, you could take a colorful scarf or an oriental rug or whatever. Uh, or, you know, it's, it could be a flower bed or leaves, you know, we're in the fall season now, yeah. leaves on the ground or whatever. And you can just photograph to your heart's content up to 128 frames it will combine. Whoa. I've never done that many. Um, but and you can set the interval in between each shot and do all kinds of amazing painterly things uh, that way. So wow. rotate and zoom, you know, all the different techniques in my book uh, you can do with that app as well. So that, too, is very freeing to be able to to use a phone doing that. But it's yeah. definitely possible with our cameras as well. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Well, definitely I'll find them and link them in the show notes. And yeah, it sounds like a lot of fun to play with it for is. sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Opens a whole new world. Yeah. Makes me want to upgrade my phone. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, you can use that. Both of those apps I just talked about, even in the very early iPhones, I used to use them with my iPhone 6, you know, so oh, wow. okay. it's, you don't have to have a later version phone to use those two apps. Okay. Well, that's good to know. That's good. Yeah. So when it comes to creating your abstract or impressionistics, what sort of compositional elements tend to draw your eye that make you decide that you want to do more of an abstract or impressionistic type of image versus a straight shot? Is it something that you do just routinely to, to try out when you're out doing photography or, or is it color? Is it tonal contrast? Like what is it that tends to draw your eye and inspire you to create that kind of a photograph? 
That's a very good question. Uh, it really is about just learning to see color contrast and tonal contrast. Um, so, you know, it, trees are a perfect example and one of the most popular subjects that people do either multiple exposures or intentional camera movement with. Um, and, you know, looking for like the darker tree trunk against the lighter tone of, of whatever may be behind it. And usually I try not to have something that's too cluttered behind because that can be a, you know, problem sometimes, although sometimes it's an asset, you know, right? <laughs> but, um, you know, just looking for that, uh, those two, two elements really are the main thing. And not as much with a grand scene. It's more, you know, if I'm looking to a smaller vignette of a larger scene. So I'm almost always using my 70 to 200 lens, telephoto lens, mm -hmm. um, just because it compresses the space and gives you that feeling of being more intimate with your subject. Yeah. So do, in terms of composition, when it comes to abstract photography in particular, do different theories of composition apply as you would use, say, in landscape and nature photography that's more straight photography? So I'm not thinking like rule of thirds. I'm not talking about that, but like visual weight, leading the viewer throughout the frame, balance, asymmetrical balance, things like that. Do, do those types of things apply as well when you're composing? Absolutely. All of the above. Yes. Yeah. I really think of a macro scene or a close up or an abstract as a very tiny landscape. You know, mm. so yes, even the rule of thirds and all of that stuff, visual weight, everything you just talked about for sure apply to that. And so that, again, is another reason that I love using my phone on a regular basis because it's training me to see that and to compose that way and, and all of that so that when I am out in the field with my big boy camera, I can, you know, do that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I know for myself when I'm doing abstracts and stuff, I end up doing a lot of cropping in post-processing and uh, changing the orientation of the frame and sort of, I end up coming up with things that are not at all what I was thinking when I was in the field. So I was curious about your process. Do you, are you liberal with your cropping and that sort of thing? Are you trying to get the framing just right when you're out in the field? Yes. I think because I was trained with film I'm in the habit of trying to get as much right in the field as I can. Um, I think sometimes we get a little lazy, you know, like, oh, I'll just crop that later or whatever. And I get that, though, if you're using a, a camera with, you know, high number of mega, megapixel, high number of megapixels, um, that makes sense to do that. And it's a great if you especially if you have a lens that can't reach that far. Mm -hmm. uh, if you're trying to just get a, a little tiny piece of something larger and you see that piece, but you just can't get it with your equipment that you have. Yeah. Uh, so but I try to get it right as much as I can in the camera, although I do some cropping, but usually I can get what I want uh, pretty close. Yeah, that's great. I need to practice that some more. <laughs> um, and are you pre-visualizing your macro and abstract and impressionistic shots? Or is it something that as you're experimenting in the field, you sort of come up with it as you're creating? It's kind of a combination of both. I would say, you know, I, I can tell that something might, I'll have an inkling that something might work well uh, in impressionistic ways. 
because of the tonal contrast and the color contrast and that sort of thing and, uh, you know, backlighting or whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'll try it. And sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. And, you know, I don't beat myself up if it doesn't. It's right. like, OK, yeah. you know, that subject just isn't maybe that great for doing that. But a lot of times, though, I really try not to make it where it's too gimmicky. You know, you really want to take a moment to step back, you know, put the camera down even before you ever approach the subject and say, okay, what emotions am I feeling here? What feeling do I have? And what, you know, how can I best convey that feeling? And if the answer is use multiple exposures or, you know, intentional movement or whatever, then that is a way to employ those techniques. It's not necessarily about thinking about the technique per se first. Right. If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. No, I like that, that you take this inquisitive approach first and ask, you know, what is yes. it that's drawing you in? What what are you feeling? How can you translate that? Sure. Yeah, exactly. And it's great to have a sense of what you want, but if your ideas are too preconceived, it can be enough to maybe cause the creative juices to slow down or right. <laughs> go away. Yes. <laughs> Lead to a lot of frustration. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Uh, so I've heard you say that photography is a performance art. And I was wondering if you could explain that a little bit more. What do you mean by that concept? Yes, that's uh, something I love to to say to my students a lot. Uh, <laughs> it really is something you have to just keep practicing. Just like if you were trying to learn to play the piano or when you first learned to ride a bike or whatever it is, it just requires practice, practice, practice. Keep doing it. Don't be afraid to fail. Don't be afraid to delete. Don't be too quick to delete. Um, (laughs) You know, uh, they say the biggest difference between a professional photographer and an amateur is that the professional has a larger trash can. I don't know if you've heard that before. Um, I hadn't. (laughs) But it is all about uh, just being open, being receptive, letting the subject find you um, and all of that that I think really makes for better imagery. And yes, you're going to fail a lot, but that's okay. And you just get right back up and keep trying different things and experimenting and keep going. And I mean, I still feel like I'm learning. So that's one of the beauties about photography. Right. I totally agree. Yeah. I mean, if we weren't constantly challenging ourselves, it would get kind of boring after a while. So yeah, that's great. Thank you for sharing that. As I mentioned to you before we were recording earlier this summer, I, I busted my foot pretty badly. I tore the plantar fascia and I was in a boot and on crutches for several months. And I decided to, instead of sulking and feeling really sorry for myself, <laughs> I decided to use that as an opportunity to learn macro photography. And I had had on my wish list for a long time a macro lens. And so I finally invested in my my first lens And I reached out to the listeners of the podcast and I said, hey, what are your macro photography questions? You know, I'll do an episode on macro and all of that. And once I started trying to learn macro, I realized just how challenging it actually is. (laughs) And I realized it would be better to have an expert answer these questions (laughs) such as yourself. So I've organized the questions into sort of three categories. One's on lenses, one's on lighting, and the other one is on composition and um, But to start off, I, I want to ask a question of my own, and that is, how the heck do you deal with wind? 
<laughs> That's a very good question. Yes, uh, you get up at oh dark thirty, and yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's how you deal with it. No, I mean there is some truth to going out early in the morning, as early as you can, because there's less wind usually. Um, there is a device called a plamp, P L A M P, that somebody thing. invented that will allow you to hold a flower or you know whatever it is you're doing. Um, out in nature is usually where you'd use it. Although I do use one in this for indoor macro work and we can talk about indoor macro versus outdoor in a, yeah, in a minute. That, a, a huge difference there. That would be um, great. But anyway, the plamp um, is allows you to, you know, gently without breaking the stem, uh, hold that flower still and be able to, to get a sharper image that way. But yes, wind is a huge uh, enemy. And a lot <laughs> yeah. of times I am on a tripod and I'm trying to use a slow or low ISO. So your shutter speeds are going to be slower. But if the wind's too much, you do have to bump that ISO up, increase the ISO, you know, to, to get a shutter speed that's fast enough. And as you know, most of the listeners probably already know, but I'll repeat um, it. You want to use a s shutter speed that's no slower than one over the focal length of your lens if you're hand holding that lens yeah. so you know if i have a 100 millimeter macro lens i don't want to go slower than about one one hundredth of a second if i'm yeah. hand holding but on a tripod it's a different game where you could use a slower shutter speed but if wind is present forget it yes <laughs> that's yeah. when you actually can go with the wind and have an intentionally blurry right. <laughs> if you want it. embrace it find that with a sharp image later or, you know as an overlay or something but yeah 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 i was doing most of mine just hand holding in the gardens that i have you know, i have a, a couple of um, perennial gardens that i have around our house and i mean it was a great exercise i mean I was sad to not be hiking, but I was also so glad to start to understand my flowers on a much more intimate level. But sure. um, so I was handholding and even just sometimes I felt like it was even my breath that would like move the pedal, you know, and the depth of field is so shallow that it's really easy to lose your focus point. And um, I did find that to be a bit frustrating. Yes, <laughs> so the, the, yes. The plamp, you're not alone. Yeah. Definitely not alone in that. This yes. plant device, is it on your resources page? It is. Yes. Okay, in great. the gear section, actually, in not the, the resources page, but the gear okay. section. Yeah. Okay, good. We'll, so, we'll link to that. I'm curious. I might have to get one. <laughs> yes. And they make a plant extension, which makes the plant longer. And I suggest people get that. I think it's like four or $5 extra. I don't okay. know why they don't just sell it as one piece, but, um, and you can bend the plant and adjust it. Uh, with a certain amount of tension or it's pretty easy to, to use uh, and they've improved it over the years, the design of it. Yeah. Interesting. And then from a, a practical standpoint for those of us who are getting older, um, how do you uh, take care of your knees and your back, you know, when you're squatting or kneeling or bending over <laughs> hours on yeah, end, trying to wait for the wind to stop? <laughs> well, and I do a lot of uh, workshops in uh, public gardens that have paved pathways yeah. and you can't kneel very long on those <laughs> without yeah. giving up you know and so i actually on my website in the the shop section of my website do sell a pair of macro knee pads for people and they're very small and fit in your camera bag and they've got velcro and um, adjustable so that you know i mean you could certainly just use a, a 
a mat that you might garden with or something to kneel on. But this right. is great for carrying with you in your in the field if you're traveling or whatever. Um, and yeah, so knee pads is definitely one suggestion. And because, yeah, there are times when you really do want to get low like that and it's hard on your body. And now with some of the cameras that have the articulating LED or LCD screen, um, you know, that makes it a little easier. And you could use a bean bag or there's uh, other tools like the Platypod, which mm -hmm. other photographers have maybe mentioned in previous podcasts. We actually haven't talked about the Platypod, but yeah, I'm familiar with it. And yeah, that's a, like a little plate that you can mount in different ways to hold your camera sort of as a tiny, tiny mini tripod stand, I guess. If, right. It's like, but it's like a flat plate with feet that you can strap yes. to things. And yeah. Right. Okay. Well, some listener questions. Let's talk about lenses. So one, one of a, a very common question that came in was, can you do macro photography with a telephoto lens or do you need to have a macro specific lens? And what are some pros and cons of either approach? So one way of doing macro, if you don't currently own a macro lens, is to actually use a telephoto lens. I'm assuming you have one. Most people do probably. Um, and using a close-up filter or a close-up diopter on the end of that lens. And that's a less expensive way of kind of tiptoeing into macro. And again, on the gear section of my website, uh, you'll see a link to, there's a, a close-up lens. Um, I think it's called the Acromatic Plus 5 close-up lens. And it's a real high quality filter, if you will, kind of a thick filter. It's almost as if they've slice the front element of a lens off. Hmm. Uh, so it's got dual glass and edge to edge sharpness and all of that. And the beauty is you don't lose light like you might with extension tubes and other sorts of ways of magnification. So you can screw that on the end of your telephoto lens and just throw those two items in your backpack if you're going to go hiking or whatever and not have to have the extra weight of a macro lens. And what's really nice about that is you can also add that filter to your macro lens later on if you do acquire a macro lens and be able to get beyond one-to-one -one magnification with your subject. Oh, so I'm exciting. a huge fan of the uh, close-up diopters with in conjunction with telephoto lenses. If you don't want to go that route, and it's totally fine, you can just use a straight macro lens. And those are designed to give you that real close focus, one-to-one -one, uh, magnification. But one of the most common mistakes that I find when teaching uh, people out in the field, my students don't realize sometimes how close their macro lens can focus. So I ask them to look at the barrel of the lens and find the scale there. Hopefully it is on your lens. Some manufacturers have stopped putting this on the barrel of the lens, but they'll you'll see an infinity symbol on one end and as you turn the focus, the other end is not infinity. So if you turn your lens all the way to that minimum focus distance, if you will, opposite infinity, and then walk toward your subject without changing the focus, you'll see how close that macro lens is capable of focusing. Nice. That's a very good tip. Yeah. yeah. And some lenses that do autofocus as well, they have a limiter switch on the lens and, you know, you can limit where it's searching for the focus. And so you can say, like, I really only want to focus like 0.2 to 0.5 feet in front of the lens versus out to infinity. And then there'll be less hunting on the on the lens that way. Right. Exactly. 
And so how, what are uh, extension tubes and how are they used? So I do own a set of extension tubes. Most manufacturers sell a set of them. Um, and there's usually, you know, a skinny one and then one that's medium focal length and then another one that's a little bit thicker. And you're basically buying hollow tubing. So it's not real expensive and it goes between the lens and the camera body and does magnify your subject. You can stack the extension tubes, but the downside of using them, of course, is you are going to lose some light. So you're going to have to compensate for that. And the image quality can sometimes suffer uh, because you're moving the lens further away from, you know, the sensor. But right. it's definitely a, a valid way of doing close-up work. I find myself using the diopter or the close-up filter I just described more than the uh, extension tubes, just, I guess, because you get better quality and don't lose light. Right. Yeah. Makes sense. It makes sense that the the focal point you know, where you're focusing is going to change the further you get the end of the lens away from the sensor. And also the distance that the light then needs to travel to get to the sensor is longer. So yeah, you will lose the quantity of light that's hitting your lens. And so you may have to increase your ISO, which would potentially decrease the the quality. So yeah, that makes sense. Unless you're on a tripod. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things I'll mention, too, is a lot of people don't realize you can take the skinniest extension tube. So in my case, it's a 12 millimeter extension tube. And you can actually put that on and stack that with a wide angle lens and be able to do wide angle macro. Oh, interesting. So people don't realize that's another creative way of it's really showing the subject in a larger environment. Uh, and you're almost touching the subject when you do that. Focus real close. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. that sounds cool. You have to try that in your backyard. Yeah, I will have to try that. So in terms of lighting, and maybe we can talk about indoor lighting in a studio where you're controlling the light versus outdoor lighting. For macro work, it sounds like you don't have a necessarily a preference for your favorite kind of light. You can do macro in any kind of light indoor or outdoor. But the question is, do you have a preference? Is cloudy, sunshine, rainy, or maybe even indoors? Right. So when I'm outdoors, usually I love to go out on a bright overcast day, uh, preferably after a like a rainfall or if there's a light drizzle. Um, the colors are just more saturated with that type of light. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just a magical time really to be out doing close-ups is preferably early morning <laughs> because mm-hmm. of the wind factor, as we talked about. But um, yeah, so but that's not to say you can't photograph when it's sunny. Uh, I do carry a 42 inch diffuser uh, mm-hmm. and that, too, is in the gear section of my website. Um, and that helps me. It's kind of a portable cloud, if you will, right. when it is sunny uh, to be able to get that soft sort of lighting that you might want. Um, but backlighting can be beautiful with uh, close up photography. So going out at early in the morning when the sun is at a low angle and looking for backlit subjects, you know, or dew drops and things like that, that can be really great, too. So I don't want to say, you know, blanket rule, never go out when it's sunny uh, and do macro. But in general, it's better if it's kind of a bright overcast day. And um, for indoor macro, I love window light or if I'm, you know, a lot of the workshops I teach might be in a hotel uh, 
meeting room where there are no windows, I will use uh, one of the little Lytra um, lights that they're, they're these small little cubes, if you will, uh, that put out a good bit of light. And they some of them come with this little diffuser dome that mm-hmm. you put on top that softens the light. And usually there's different brightness levels and that sort of thing. Um, or I also have a uh, flashlight that I love that has, um, I can't remember exactly, but it's 30 some colors built into the flashlight. And oh, wow. that is a lot of fun for people who even want to do light painting and that sort of thing. That actually I do sell on my website in the shop section of my website. Nice. Um, but it's a multicolor uh, LED flashlight and it's a lot of fun. There's a little bit of a learning curve in using it because it's mainly used for stage uh, performances. Oh, okay. I'll say that up front. But I have a whole uh, set of instructions that I send people when they buy one uh, with the flashlight that tells them how to use it. But anyway, uh, the key, though, with any supplemental lighting, I think, is to make sure that it doesn't look like you used it. You know, you want to be very subtle about it. Um, So if I'm backlighting something or if it's a flower that has a long throat, you know, like a lily or something like that, I'll sometimes move the light fairly far away just to make sure it doesn't look too intense and, you know, too fake, if you will. (laughs) Right. Uh, So you just want to be tasteful about it. And uh, I'll always shoot it without that flashlight first. You know, I may end up liking that better sometimes. Um, And the same goes for artificial uh, droplets. You know, I do sometimes use this little spray bottle and even uh, indoors, if you're in your own garden or indoors uh, with plants or flowers, you can make a solution of glycerin, liquid glycerin with water and Mm. mix that in the little spray bottle. Usually I'll use like about a third uh, of glycerin and two thirds water and kind of shake that up and it doesn't kill the plant, but it helps the drops to cling better to the the flower or the plant, but you got to be real careful not to overdo it. (laughs) No pun intended. (laughs) So yeah. Um, But it's a lot of fun with the lighting. I got a little off track there, but lighting indoors can be uh, a fun way of doing close up subjects as well. And I also have a light box that you can backlight subjects. And some people even use an iPad, you know, or, computer screen to backlight things. Uh, But you can really, really get creative, especially in the winter months, working with supplemental lighting indoors, just things on your kitchen table or whatever. And there's a whole uh, workshop I do in the Atlanta area every year. It's a weekend workshop where I bring in all kinds of fun toys. I like to call them glass and mylar and you know, colorful backgrounds and different objects, shells and rocks and, you know, all these things that you can play with indoors and just do tabletop type setups with macro. So that's a whole different type of close up photography that allows you to be, I think, even more creative than you might be able to be in the field with subjects because you can move them around and control distances between background and and subject and all kinds of fun things like that. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't played with that yet, but I definitely would like to, and and perhaps this winter would be a good time to do that. Yes. Uh, Yes. I love using iridescent glass. Uh, If the listeners aren't familiar with that, it's a type of glass that it's got a, it's very reflective, but it has this wavy sort of pattern and makes things look really abstract. So you can do reflections of things all day long in that type of glass. Um, 
And so, and actually, if people have trouble finding it, usually you can find that kind of glass at a local stained glass supplier. But on my website in the shop, I do also sell sheets of glass. I have a supplier that ships them. None of them have ever broken. Wow. Uh, Knock on two wood. people uh, <laughs> who want to really, you know, dive into this deeper at home and, and play with glass that way. So, but yeah, yeah the, it's endless that, you know, you may discover some other way of doing close-ups that I don't even know about. And that's one of the joys of teaching indoor macro like that. Yeah. Because I get ideas from people, you know. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, I got to try that. Yeah. Yeah. Super cool. And so do you ever do flash photography with the indoor studio work? Sometimes, very rarely. uh, I would say outdoors would be when I use the flash more, just that me personally. But even outdoors, maybe only 5% of the time uh, for like fill light. Uh, A lot of times I'll try and use a reflector or, uh, you know, if it's low light, uh, some sort of flashlight or whatever, even outdoors, just to to pop a little bit of light into your subject, but you definitely can use, they have ring lights that are designed just for macro uh, and other types of lights that you can take the the flash off the hot shoe and, you know, control the lighting. And, but I don't know, I really believe that whole kiss rule, <laughs> you know, keep right. it simple and, <laughs> and uh, just, you know, with lighting, it, it, a lot of times natural light can be the best. Yeah. And it is amazing what you can do with those reflectors and diffusers uh, in terms of, softening the light or b- bouncing it just it's such a softer effect um absolutely yeah yep. so in terms of composition it seems like the things that are pretty challenging to people are you know figuring out where to focus how to keep that focus especially when it comes to creative use of depth of field and you know the the depth of field is so shallow when you're working so close or with a telephoto lens and so how are you making your decisions around that and what are you thinking about in terms of your background and how to have that complement your subject? Yeah, those are all excellent questions. I think of the words of Nancy Rotenberg that echo in my head to this day. Uh, she used to say, focus on what's going to bug you the most if it's not sharp. Yeah, that's <laughs> great. That is probably one of the most common questions when you're doing close up work is, you know, where the heck do I focus? So, Really, you know, figure out what's calling you if it's like the curve of a petal or the center of a flower or whatever subject you're working with. And then, you know, make sure that part is sharp, because remember, your viewer's eye is going to always go to what's sharpest and also what's brightest in your frame. And a lot of times I really do study the background uh, before I ever choose a subject because in some ways the background is more important i would argue than the subject itself as a supporting actor if you will because you know really has to have the right sort of color complement and um, it needs to also be if you're trying to really isolate a subject far enough away from the subject where you'll still be able to get that shallow depth of field and soften the background Um, so even at a wide wide aperture like 2.8 if you've got a, a colorful thing behind the subject that's, you know, a foot away, uh, it can still be too close and you may have to move it further back to get it. So that's one of the beauties, again, of like doing stuff in a more controlled environment indoors. Um, And if you're a gardener, don't plant everything, you know, keep stuff in pots or go buy cut flowers. That way you can move them around and really be able to control that. But if you're in the field, you really just have to 
look for something where a background is far enough away where it's still going to give you that shallow depth of field a lot of times. Yeah, that was one of my challenges because my I admit my perennial gardens are quite overgrown and need to be kind of pruned back oh, a little bit. Lovely. You could do impressionistic <laughs> stuff with that yes, for sure. That's true. I should have done that. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, I would use the shallow depth of field and I would think about the colors and all of that. And then later I'd realize that the your, what you're saying was exactly what would happen is that the background was still just a little too close. And so instead of having sort of a uniform soft color effect, it was more blotchy. Even though it was blurry right. and bokeh and all that, it was still not that sure. it was still distracting. And so yeah. yeah. And one one thing that I've experimented with lately is, and this is a great exercise for all the listeners to try. Um set your camera to manual focus, get a telephoto lens. And if it's like with my 70 to 200, I'd want to be more on the 200 end of the lens than the 70 end. And set your uh, aperture wide open and intentionally defocus and just go around making images of defocused stuff because you'll see the colors, you'll see the blobs. Uh, you know, I mean, if you really defocus, those blobs kind of go away and you get that nice wash of color. Then you can later combine those images with something else. And, or, mm. you know, if you do note cards, they're great because you can put lettering over them or whatever. So using that as a foundation could be interesting. And even trying in camera, combining several shots of out of focusness with a sharp subject and let the camera combine those, you know, set the camera to do three or four. And maybe only one of those is something sharp and the other three are defocused. Right. Blobs of color, you know, so it's endless. It really is. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <you> can create. <laughs> yeah. Well, I can't wait. You are inspiring me to, to really up my game when it comes to the multiple exposures. I really need to try that. It sounds really yeah, fun. I think it's, it, you're going to love it. It's one of the most underutilized creative tools in a camera. I yeah. Think. Yeah. Well, before we wrap things up, are you up for doing a lightning round? Sure. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Quick answers. What is your favorite subject to photograph? Flowers. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Why photography? Because it allows me to experience life in a joyous, much deeper way. I love that. Uh, what is your least favorite saying in photography? That's not sharp enough. Yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> we get fixated on sharpness, right? Yes, it's true. <laughs> what is your most recommended book on photography or creativity? Oh, that's tough. Uh, all the books by Freeman Patterson. Um, Nancy Rotenberg wrote a book called Photography and the Creative Life. I think it's out of print, but yeah. you might be able to get a used copy on eBay or somewhere. Yeah. Uh, those are the ones that come to mind immediately. Great books. I have Nancy's book, uh, Gift of John Barclay, which was really nice. What would be something that people would be surprised to learn about you? Uh, <laughs> that's a tough one. Oh, I got, well, people know this though. I uh, love ice cream. Oh, what flavor? Uh, mud pie. Ooh. So, Coffee Oreo. So you like hard ice cream, not soft serve? In general, but yeah. I'll take any kind. <laughs> You're like yeah. ice cream, just ice cream. <laughs> That's right. People have joked with me that we should organize a workshop around 
good ice cream. And, well, there you go. <laughs> yeah. You can even shoot the ice cream too, right? That's right. Before Ex- you eat it. <laughs> exactly. There is a, um, well, you know, Ben, I'm in Vermont, Ben and Jerry's obviously Vermont. And I yeah. think there's a, if you go to the Ben and Jerry store, there's a thing called the Vermonster or something. And it's like, it takes about 11 people to eat it, but there are contests to see who can eat it all in one, in one sitting. <laughs> <laughs> well, if I ever do a fall foliage workshop in Vermont, uh, we'll go. add that to the agenda. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Um, all right. Well, final question. What does connecting with nature mean to you? Oh, it means everything. Uh, it, it is so restorative and healing and just uh, a way for me to experience life on a much deeper level and uh, a way to quiet myself and forget about all the troubles in the world and personal struggles and all of that. It's just a real therapeutic activity, just being in nature and then adding a camera to that just blows me away and, and allows me to experience it on an even much deeper level. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. That's beautiful. Well, Charles, this has been such a pleasure. I really enjoyed having you on the show today. I I appreciate you taking the time and sharing all of your wisdom with our listeners. If people wanted to learn more about your photography, your books, the resources that you listed, what what would be the best way for them to get in touch with you or find out more? They can go to charlesneedlephoto.com. That's my website. And there's a workshops page. There's a section to buy books uh, under the shopping and resources like the multiple exposure script I mentioned are there as well as the gear section, which covers a lot of the gear I've mentioned. So, um, and I would love to connect on social media with people, um, active, fairly active, uh, on Facebook and Instagram. And, uh, definitely if you're interested in learning more about classes in particular and workshops, uh, whether they're in person or online and all that sort of stuff. And just following me, keeping up, I highly recommend people uh, subscribe to my email list on the website. So perfect. Yeah. Well, we will link all of those up in the show notes for everybody. And uh, thank you again, Charles. It's been really fun. Absolutely. And I'm here to help support everyone on their photographic journey and just been a real pleasure. I really appreciate you having me and uh, feel free to email me. If anybody wants to email me, I may not answer right away, but I'll definitely get back to you uh, with any sort of questions you might have about anything we discussed. And that would just be Charles at charlesneedlephoto.com. Oh, that's wonderful. Thank you so much for that. Absolutely. Thank you. All right. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Charles as much as I did. And again, you can learn more about his photography, books, workshops, and more by visiting his website at charlesneedlephoto.com. And I've also put links to the gear and resources he mentioned today in the show notes, which you can find at outdoorphotographypodcast.com slash 83. Again, thank you, Charles, for coming on the show. And thank you, dear listener, for tuning in. I appreciate you. And I hope you got a lot of value out of today's episode. I don't know about you, but I am now really excited to go experiment and play and try out many of the techniques and tips that Charles shared with us all today. To everyone who has taken a moment to leave a rating review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or on the podcast website, thank you so, so much. These really help to get the podcast to reach new listeners like you, and they indicate to our potential guests 
that we have an engaged listenership who is passionate about photography and spending time in nature and get value out of this show. And last but not least, I'll be back here next week with a special Tidbit Tuesday episode and an important announcement. So be sure to follow the podcast so you don't miss out on this or any of our upcoming episodes. And until then, get outside, my friends, and find yourself a little nature. Take care.